You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seats and tray table are in their upright positions. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Patrick, it feels like we were just here. That's <laughs> because we were. It's just a, true. Just, just a couple of minutes ago, that through the timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly stuff is actually a week ago. Indeed. Indeed. And through the, the powers of the space-time continuum and our ability to jump into and out of other people's lives, we have another guest this week. It's Elsa Hunsen. And Elsa Hunsen may or may not be known to you, but should be known to you, for a variety of different pursuits. If you are part of the SFF universe, you're probably aware of the Destroy series of fiction anthologies that originally started with Apex magazine. No, no, Lightspeed magazine. And then transferred their their themselves over to Uncanny for the Disabled Destroy series, for which Elsa was a co-editor. Uh, she has written extensively about her experience as a deafblind woman, both as a, as a professional and personally in a variety of different media areas, CNN, the Boston Globe, Tor.com, and has also worked extensively as an editor in SFF in the world of fiction and nonfiction. Elsa, it's fantastic to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to chat with you today. Now, I'm, so, I'm a little bit worried that Tracy just started a feud between John Joseph Adams and Jason from Apex. I probably so. did, yeah, with my brain fart there. So, sorry, Apex, sorry, Lightspeed. No, no shade intended. <laughs> it's just, it's been a day. It's been a day. So, I'm, I'm excited to get to talk to you in part because you're here because of a, a type of, of literature we don't often cover on Functional Nerds, your memoir, Being Seen. And it's interesting the various ways that Being Seen ties into the broader sort of geek culture and SFF culture and the media experience, and of course, is also deeply personal. So I, I got to ask, given that you have so much experience speaking so fluently and thoughtfully about personal experience as a, as a kind of measure of culture and as a, as a reflection of the world that we live in. Have you noticed that there are misapprehensions people have about like reading memoir as opposed to reading fiction? Are there, do people come to it with the wrong sets of expectations or? I don't know that they do. I mean, I've established myself as a memoirist pretty consistently and my style has definitely been a hybrid style. You get a mm -hmm. chunk of media crit and you get a chunk of personal essay. And I, mm -hmm. I think that because I've sort of trained my audience to expect that, it has really benefited by being seen in terms of what people are expecting coming into the book. So, you, of course, media criticism is a, is a huge part of how you've kind of positioned your voice and your experience and expertise as a deafblind woman. And I, I, I'm going to... I'm going to admit here that I'm not exactly playing fair because there are some topics that I love to hear you hold forth on, Elsa. So I'm going to poke the bear a little bit um, <laughs> because obviously there are so many ways in which media, I don't know, what's the right way to phrase it? Surely you would. That media kind of narrow our understanding of or narrow our, our our ability to empathize with different sorts of disabled characters. I know that you in particular have had a someone give me daredevil, please position for a long time. So talk to me about some of the disabled tropes that you think that we've become insensitive to that 
that when we stop to think about them really should be stuff that we're critiquing? Well, I mean, I appreciate that you're doing bear baiting. After all, it's been illegal since the 1500s. Uh, we'll just make, make the assumption that we're in Southwark. So I think one of the things that I'm hoping we really get rid of and interrogate more is the idea that disabled bodies need to be cured. Like, this is a consistent problem in science fiction and fantasy. It's in The Witcher. It's in all of these other shows that people love to watch. It's in Game of Thrones. And I'm, I'm tired. Like, we're sort of being expected to just be okay with the idea that the only good disabled body is a cured disabled body. That mm-hmm. sort of, it's, it's all well and good if you're disabled for an episode or two, but eventually you need to stop having that body. And so I see a lot of non-disabled viewers of science fiction and fantasy media not really caring. Mm -hmm. And we need to fix that because it's a pernicious lie that then, and this is what I do, shows up in the real world. Mm -hmm. Everybody assumes that I want LASIK. Everybody assumes that I want to be able to see out of two eyes. Everybody assumes that I want to hear exactly like everybody else. And that's not true. And I get that there are some disabled people who would take a cure, that they're, they're fine with that, but I've been living in this body for 36 years. I'm not gonna stop now. One of the lies that you're being sold about magical cures and also about cures in general as an extension of that is that it's just, poof, you're non-disabled, your body works just fine now. It takes time to readjust to a body that has been used to being disabled for a long time. I cannot imagine what it would be like to see out of two eyes. I literally don't. My, my brain hasn't done that since I was two weeks old. So the expectation that I would want to see out of two eyes, that I would desire this experience, is really problematic because it presumes that the only good body is one that has all of these senses that is shared by non-disabled people, rather than honoring the idea that bodies are different. So I wonder, is there, have we been fortunate enough to see any portrayals of that technology or magic corrects the disabled body trope that at least is thoughtful enough about it to consider what that adjustment period would look like? Have we, have we been lucky enough to get that yet? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was a short answer. (laughs) You know, it's always funny. People like to ask me, they're like, have you seen deafblind characters portrayed right? And I'm like, no, no, Mm-mm, haven't. Not there yet. Looking for it. Yeah. No. Nope. Yeah. Well, I mentioned your daredevil position earlier when I asked the question. And so to kind of catch the, the, the listeners up a little bit, Elsa and I have met in person a couple of times and paneled with each other a couple of times in the past. And a, a lot of that discourse surrounding that very popular, very well-known character, I think comes from a failure to understand what Matt Murdock would actually, how he would actually navigate his world, how he would relate to his physical possessions that are part of his disability and and so on. Well, there's a story that I'll tell you about Daredevil. So I was on a panel at Arisia in 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. And I was talking about Daredevil and I referred to Daredevil as blind and a gentleman in the back row, and I'm calling him a gentleman sort of politely, uh, (laughs) shouts out that Daredevil's not really blind. And I had, at that point, had a very long 
24 hours. It had been a full day of panels, one of which started at 8 a.m. And I literally just looked at the audience and I was like, yes, Daredevil is blind. Are we moving on now? Let's acknowledge <laughs> the truth. Like, because this is the thing that I get from fans all the time. Daredevil's not really blind because he has these magical powers. And it's like, no, Daredevil uses the white cane. Daredevil has a talking alarm clock. Daredevil uses Jaws. It's in the TV show, it's in the comics. Like, it's there. Now, I want them to give me Daredevil because I would like to be able to write his superpowers in a way that actually makes sense for a blank character to have them. And I've gotten to do that a little bit in Jessica Jones playing with fire, which came out from Realm a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah. I'd like my own run of comics. That would be real fun. So, so th for those people, I think who don't understand the blind experience, let's let's get a little bit more concrete there. So, give me for an example, like as a as a blind person, your relationship to your white cane and how you function with it versus what we end up seeing daredevil do or don't do whether it's television or comic well i think it's it's across the board uh, every single blind character i've seen on television doesn't use their white cane properly actually charlie cox's portrayal of daredevil gets close in some places like you'll see him leaning his white cane up against a wall behind him so that he can actually mm -hmm. find it now mm -hmm. usually i fold it up and stick it under a chair because it's less likely to fall over but that's a choice that you can make but yeah. He also chucks his white cane in alleys. This is one of those those examples that I use a lot. So if you've heard me speak before, you know what's coming. I calculated the amount of money that Daredevil would have spent on his white canes in season one of Daredevil for the Netflix series. It was a lot of money. Matt Murdock is the, a poor lawyer in the middle of Hell's Kitchen who can barely afford his rent. He can't afford to be chucking white canes in alleyways every episode. It's not. They're expensive. <laughs> You don't think he's trading the bananas for new canes? No, because they're 50 bucks a pop and you have to get them from a specialized store. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you heard of the other the CW show uh, what's it called in the dark? Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take that as a yes. Oh, that's a problematic show. Um as a former guide dog handler, I have a lot of issues with that show. That seems to play up the trope of the, the disability comes with drug abuse and alcohol abuse. It does. She, I mean, it she also... drinks, she does drugs, she does all kinds of stuff all the time. Well, it also comes with the trope of not being able to figure out where you are. Her physicality is really troubling to me. She sticks her arms out, even when she has a guide dog, she like sticks her arms out to feel walls instead of trusting the dog to guide her into places. Yeah. And she only uses the dog occasionally. She actually leaves the dog at home a lot, which is really weird to me. The yeah. dog itself would not be right. pleased with that arrangement. The dog wants to work. This is one of the things that I learned as a guide dog handler is that the dog really like they want to do their job. Also, they are bonded to you. And if you leave them at home, they will cry and howl and bark and they would they, they're like no why did you leave me at home what's wrong with you yeah so so in the dark has a whole bunch of problems with it but but i think the thing that's really important to remember when you're watching in the dark is that there is an actual like blind actress in the show the teenage daughter of the cop is played by a low vision actress her physicality oh. is more accurate than the physicality of the lead actress who is not blind I did not know that. 
So I, I have to ask, because I'm curious, and I, this is coming from someone who hasn't seen it, but of course Marvel's Eternals has been out for, for a bit now, and it's accumulating reactions from people. And it's my understanding that one of the actors for the central characters there is deaf. And I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see Eternals and to, to have a sense of how that weighs into your experience as a viewer. I have not yet watched the Eternals because I haven't had time. It's been on my list. Uh, I also need to watch Hawkeye, which also has deaf representation in it. Um, Yeah, yeah. But I can speak to the fact that Matt Fraction's Hawkeye, which is a comic strip, used ASL beautifully. And so if you're looking for good ASL representation, that comic is actually a really good place to start. In terms of the Eternals, I've seen a lot of deaf people be very excited about the fact that they can now get an action figure for a deaf character in Walmart. Like, that's new. That's never happened before. So I think that there's certainly representation that's changed, and it's exciting. But I don't know. I haven't yet seen it for myself, so I can't speak to it. So I'm gonna, I want to sort of flip things around a little bit here because we've been focusing so much on your personal experience and your reaction to individual media and things like that. But you also write fiction. And I'm interested in how your fiction has been. I mean, how, how's it been going? Should we look out for anything <laughs> from you in the future? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> don't know what you are allowed to talk about or not. I do have a novel coming out in April. It's called Sword of the White Horse, which is an Assassin's Creed tie-in novel. I've been referring to the plot as a stabby witch heist, which is pretty accurate. Um, It's about a witch warrior from Caledonia who works with the Assassin's Brotherhood to handle a problem because Excalibur has gone missing. And she is part of Avalon. And that's all I can really tell you. But it is is, going to be a fun book. I definitely have been getting DMs from people who are reading it in ARC format right now who are just like, oh, this is really fun. I'm getting distracted. You have written a pure cinnamon roll. So... How was your experience working in in sort of an established universe that way? Obviously, you've done it before because of with Realm, uh, formerly Serial Box, with Jessica Jones. But mm-hmm. um, how was how was the Assassin's Creed universe? The people you had to work with, the, did they story bible you through a lot of stuff? I'm really interested. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a challenge. Like you have to stick really closely to the lore. There were definitely things I had to change because of the way that the lore worked. Um, but, you know, I got to play in a sandbox for a video game franchise that I've been playing for a decade. So that was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, working in IP is always a challenge because you aren't really playing with your own characters. You're not really playing with your own world. And that, uh, that has, it's, it's tricky. Um, yeah. I think it's a specific yeah. skill set. Like, it is not like writing a novel for yourself. It is like writing a novel for somebody else and then yeah. handing it to them. Yeah, it's, it's sort of on spec to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. My synopsis went through a full appro- approvals process. You know, it was very much stick to what you told us earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They don't want you wandering outside the lines. No. 
<laughs> I've heard similar stories from from other folks who've who've done tie-in novels and and worked in other people's worlds. And it, it, depending on the person, it can be very frustrating. Mm-hmm. I sort of had to experience that, like, even when it was frustrating, I knew it wasn't my property. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like it, 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 you've kind of been invited as a guest into another home, yeah. I suppose, is, is, is a useful analogy there. There's, they, they may or may not handle dinner time the way that you do, but that's that's... That's the way dinner time is done. <laughs> and then there seems yeah. to be very strong fan reactions when someone is allowed to do something that is outside, like killing Chewbacca. It's oh. like suddenly yeah. everybody loses their mind. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, there's, there's so... Working in IP is challenging not just because you're in someone else's house, so to speak, but it's also challenging because you are inheriting a certain fan base yeah. that... Some fan bases have their own personas, I think, in aggregate, and some of them are kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say that, like, I am not. I, I, I have noticed that the Assassin's Creed fan base is really just like, why are we getting novels? Why can't we get more video games? Why wasn't this in the in the game? And I guess I do kind of want to speak to that to the fans, like, guys, Ubisoft wouldn't hire me to write a storyline for a video game. So if you want the story that I'm telling, then you get it in novel format. If you don't want the story, fine, but other people do. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that there may be some zero-sum game thinking there. Like, if they are investing in novels, will that endanger them investing in, in, in the game in the future and in that franchise in the future? Well, and I think that it's, it's rarely that simple. Like, one is meant to feed the other. Yeah. yeah, and and potentially bring people in. So you might get someone who who reads the book, who goes, "Oh, this is a, this is a really cool world. I want to play the game." Well, and I had a friend who saw that I was writing an Assassin's Creed book from the perspective of pagans, who was really excited because yeah. she didn't feel like pagans had been fairly represented in the game, and so it was nice to be able to say, "Yeah, I actually am treating paganism in a different way in the game." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed is an interesting franchise. I I think they're gorgeous games. They really are. Mm-hmm. I am. I don't have the temperament to sneak around. <laughs> yeah, you talked about this before. Yeah, I am very like I I remember doing like the the very first game where you kind of had to sneak down the mountain through the village and all the people and you're supposed to be very you know sneaky and I I didn't get very far. I, eventually it drove me the, like stabby 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 the expectation of sneakiness has changed in the video games in the last couple of episodes of uh, games not episodes um because the the odyssey is definitely less sneaky more stabby and so is uh valhalla ah okay yeah, that first game was was hard on me. <laughs> I tried, you know. There's even the the Dishonored franchise I like uh, quite a bit. Oh, a ton I of love Dishonored. That with that. There's a ton of sneaky. Yes, and yes, there is. Even when I think I'm being sneaky, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I am really not. Yeah, but yeah. 
I managed to sneak up and kill this guard. Yay me! And then 500 other guards come running up behind me going, uh, you're not as sneaky as you think you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was actually playing some Dishonored yesterday uh, before my migraine hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, migraines and video games don't want to play together they, at all. They do not. They do not. Or maybe another way of thinking, I mean, maybe they do want to play together, like one summoned the other to some extent, and I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I sure. Vilify, I vilify the poor innocent video game. I, I think I'm actually going to vilify the sun in this instance. <laughs> well, you're still living in the Seattle area, so there's there's definitely, a, the relationship to the sun there is, is pretty fraught to begin with. It is, and um, <laughs> we definitely had some yesterday, and that was a little bit of a shock. <laughs> We had snow, so <laughs> we, we had, had snow. snow. All we had we had uh, six inches of snow a couple weeks back, and did not wow. leave the neighborhood for seven days. Yeah, yikes! Yikes! That's not typical for shouldn't be typical, I guess. In this in in this these here global warming times, what even is typical mean anymore? Climate change. Well, when, I think the climate. Areas- Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Oh, we're talking about climate change. I, I, I think that the the climate in Seattle is changing into a more wintry place. That's yeah. actually one of the big changes that I've seen because I grew up here, and when I was a kid, we didn't get snow every year, and now it's like every winter we get at least one big snowstorm. Mm-hmm. And and to your point, when the when the town isn't prepared for that, everything shuts down. <laughs> Yes, because that's what happened. <laughs> that's what happened when I was living in Chattanooga, and this was back in you know 2002, 2003. They are not set up for snow. They don't get snow. It snowed. The whole city shut down. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, because they didn't have a way to clear the roads. They didn't have a way like nothing. And there was a huge run in the stores on milk, eggs, and bread, which is that. That's what. That's where my joke about French toast during a <laughs> snowstorm comes from, because it seems like. You know, yep. the, you got the local news going, oh, we're here at the local Kroger and, and there's no milk, eggs or bread. Everybody's just coming around. And I'm going, so everybody's just planning on making French toast? Like, Look, if I get snowed in, I time has no meaning and all rest, all all meals are brunch as far as I'm concerned. So that's fine. <laughs> I, I'm not going to yep. dispute that as a move. <laughs> so, so one of the things I wanted to... Um, make sure that we took some time to talk about, uh, especially because of you talking about the Assassin's Creed books and your, your gaming experience and so on, is um, how the shift of the world into a more online space has been affecting you uh, over the last, oh, I guess, 18 months now or so we've been doing, which so many people have been doing online cons or um, various like uh, live stream book promo events and things like that. And I sort of, I wonder how that's been serving you. It's been really challenging. My readers for being seen are deaf or deafblind and reaching my populations has been a lot more challenging. Um, I had an event that was supposed to be ASL interpreted as well as captioned and the ASL interpreters never showed up on him. And that... Yeah, and like this is one of my pledges. It's like I always want to have as much accessibility as possible, but like I can't control when an interpreter doesn't show. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's just it's been different. I I really wish that I had been able to have more in person events 
understand. That just wasn't possible. Um, so I, I definitely feel that loss. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's affected me in a lot of different ways. I was able to do one in-person convention, but mostly it's been online. Online conventions are a lot more exhausting for me. So I just, I, you know, I have to take less events. I have to spend more time resting. It's, it's a really different experience. I get overwhelmed a lot more easily when I have to wear headphones and use a screen. Yeah, yeah, the whole way that you're processing that sensory information, it's, it's a different process for you and a different burden for you than it is for other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know so that when I have... Yeah, when I've taught online, which was the entirety of last academic year, um, we adopted using uh, the built-in closed captioning on Zoom pretty early. And it is, to call it an imperfect science is probably ungenerous to imperfect sciences. Um, but, you know, it's it's it was sort of interesting and eye-opening for me in a variety of ways because as I was looking at it auto-generating captions of things that I was saying, um, for everyone in my, my Zoom classroom, not knowing whether or not they had a specific need of the captions or if they were just there for sort of utility. There are all sorts of ways in which the technology we're trying to develop to improve accessibility falls short. Um, there are tons of students at my school who are from non-Western backgrounds, and mm -hmm. it absolutely played havoc with their names. Uh, that anytime I spoke a student's name, if that student's name wasn't John or Becky or something along, then just hold on to your butts. Because um, who knew well, what it wanted to do with Ranjani or, you know, Eugenia yeah. or things like that. Uh, captioning um, also doesn't like the word deaf. It thinks it's the mm -hmm. word dead. Oh, no. That is... Um, so I end up being dead blind on a lot of calls. Oh no! Oh yeah, oh. it's Not a the problem. Best. <laughs> um, and also just the fact that like not everybody knows how to use those settings. Like I, I had a job yeah. interview, and I asked them for Zoom captioning, and it, they didn't have it, and they didn't even know how to turn it on. And I was like, guys, I I interview for accessibility positions. You you should know how to do this. Yeah. Like, if, if I get this job, the first order of business is going to send out a video training for everybody to learn how to use Zoom captions. Like, yeah. this is nonsense. You know, it, 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 it feels like it's come a long way. It still has a long way to go. Because when you, when you look at, I, I know that, that television shows, the closed captioning, used to be a person sitting there typing it. Mm -hmm. And as oh, they tried to get still, into this. It still is if you use cards. Like there are there are live people who who get hired to do live captioning. Okay, mm -hmm. and and I know that a lot of the technologies now, like our phones. So I have I have an iPhone. iOS mm -hmm. has a transcription thing for voicemails. It does. And it sucks. it's not perfect. <laughs> uh, we're using ZenCaster. ZenCaster now has a transcription service because basically a lot of podcasters are doing. Uh, things where they create videos and they put them online. And so there's a transcription of the, of the podcast as part of the video. Those suck as well. You know, they, mm -hmm. to, to your point, they hear, they hear deaf, but they hear it as dead. Mm -hmm. Yep. Different, different words don't, you know, 
I mean, even when you're doing the voice to text thing, like mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use that in the car. And oh, what was I trying to? I was trying to say something too. Oh, I think it was when I was going down to Cosine, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm stuck on I-25 because of the snow. I'm trying to text Shannon to see if Shannon can tell the the Cosine people that I. I can't be there for my first panel. I'm going to be late. I'm going to be hugely late. And every time I'm telling Siri something, she's changing the words because she's hearing something different. And mm-hmm. I keep going, cancel, start again, start again. Because they, they're, they're imperfect. They're not great. Mm-hmm. But I guess to kind of shift it around, um, I think it would be easy to listen to this conversation and think like, wow, what a bummer. Like there are so <laughs> many, there are so many ways in which, um, disabled bodies and disabled people have to navigate a world that just is not accommodating them. And on the one hand, true. Uh, but I think that we could use this as an opportunity to, I think, drop some perspective or to drop in a, a, some advice for folks who listening to this might be saying to themselves, all right, I don't want to contribute to a world that makes it difficult for people to participate in fandoms or to have hobbies or to have jobs or, you know, to navigate their relationships with people. I I want to know something that I can do that contributes to improving this. So from that perspective, do you have advice for how able-bodied people can do a better job of contributing to the lives of others? I mean, non-disabled people need to deal with their ableism. Like that's the, Mm -hmm. that's the bar. Like, I see a lot of non-disabled people who contribute to ableism without thinking about it because Mm -hmm. that's the society that they've been brought up in. It's the world they've been brought up in. Do you have a disabled friend? If you don't, you should probably fix that. Do you, do you know if you have a disabled friend, like, are you capable of, of making friends with disabled people? Because one of the things that I see is a lot of segregation. We go to school Mm -hmm. and there are no disabled kids in our classrooms because you've been segregated out from them. Or you had a disabled kid in your class, but you didn't know it. Or maybe you were one of the people who made fun of them. Like maybe you joined in on bullying disabled kids and that was part of the world that you were in. And I think fighting ableism that you personally are perpetuating is one of the most important things that non-disabled people can do. Because... It's the same thing as working to undo white supremacy when you're a white person. You you have to work on undoing the eugenicist things that you've learned. And um, that is everything from being a person who says, oh, well, nobody needs large print menus at a restaurant to being the kind of person who grabs a blind person on the street instead of asking if they need help. Because you assume that a blind person does not know how to get places on their own. Um, But it's also things like making jokes about blind people crashing into walls. If you find yourself cackling hysterically at Mr. Magoo, maybe it's time to take a minute and think about why. Um, And I know that sounds really big and scary, but the, the honest answer is that's what you need to do. Because I can't fix ableism for you. I, right. I am a deaf-blind woman, and it's, I've, I've been working on it. I've been trying to fix it, but honestly, ableism is perpetuated by non-disabled people. Mm-hmm. Y'all are going to have to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is fair. Um, I, I'm 
wouldn't expect you to come in and fix the plumbing in my house. So uh, I gotta gotta probably attend to that one on my own. All right, are we feeling it's it's good time for picks of the week? Let's let's I'm find some joy it. here. Let's do it. Picks of the week. All right. Um, so I'll start, and we'll give Elsa a chance to to jump in with her pick, and we'll finish with you, Patrick. Sound good? Okay. Yep. All right. Um, so I mentioned uh, in the last the last episode we had that the different towns have different personalities when it comes to driving, and I've been driving in Chicago a lot lately. One of the reasons I've been driving from the suburbs of Chicago into downtown a lot lately is uh, because of my brother. Uh, my brother is blind, and he lives in a um, group residence home called the Friedman Place. It's one of several of its type. There's one in Washington, D.C., and I believe there's another one in the South, but I may be incorrect. Um, and the, the purpose of Friedman Place is that it gives uh, independent living space um, or semi-independent living space to people with visual disabilities all across the range um, of, of visual disability. And uh, my brother has been completely blind uh, since he was about 30 years old. Um, he lost his vision later in life uh, due to other medical problems. And anyway, I was driving back and forth to pick him up so he could spend time with family and come out to the suburbs and, and see my, my family and my kids. One of the things that we always strive to do with my brother is figure out ways that the things that he's always loved uh, are, are things that he can do with us. And as he is uh, completely blind, uh, he used to be able to distinguish the presence of light or darkness, but he's lost that over time. Um, and the fact that he grew up playing video games and playing tabletop role-playing games and doing lots of other things means that some of the ways in which he used to engage in his favorite hobbies have been lost to him for a long time. And so one of the games that we love to play when we get together with my brother is kind of an old one. You can still find it. Uh, it's, it's a good tabletop game that has some kind of like funky late 80s mechanics to it. It's called <laughs> Tales of the Arabian Nights. And it's one of those books that, as you can guess from the, the title, it's based off of, in very broad strokes, uh, the Thousand and One Nights. And so it takes characters from that milieu and it takes uh, situations that are sort of inspired by that milieu. And it's that type of tabletop uh, board game where you have a, a secret objective that you're trying to fulfill that involves traveling all across this world map and doing different stuff. And depending on what encounters you make, there is a booklet that where you consult a narrative scenario that someone else at the table reads out loud to you. And then you have a range of options based on your skills. And it's essentially a guided RPG. Um, and it works really well as something that you can scale up or down in terms of the amount of time that you play and the number of players who are engaged in it and so on. Um, and it adapts extremely easily for my brother's needs. Uh, all he needs is someone to move a chit for him from time to time. And everybody else is already having their options read out loud to them by someone else. So in that sense, he's not engaging in the game in a way that's any different than the rest of us. So we had a nice. lot of fun as a family playing Tales of the Arabian Nights. So regardless of whether you're sighted or not, I recommend you check it out. Very cool. All right. So Elsa, do you have a pick of the week for us? It's funny because I was also going to say that it's a video game. Um, oh, yeah. I, I didn't realize that they'd done that, a video adaption. Well, no, it's um, I, I now like have an Xbox. 
I have oh, not gotcha. had yeah. an Xbox in years and years and years. I was like, I was, I've always played on PCs, but I finally have a TV and a console because it was a gift. And um, I am now playing video games in a very different way. And it turns out that it's actually more accessible for me on a big screen. So I, I am now playing Skyrim and it's really fun instead of frustrating. Nice. And that, that has been really exciting to me. And there's also just this joy of like 12 year old Elsa getting to actually have the console. And yeah. it's been a hard two years. Mm -hmm. And so finding joy has been challenging and it's really, really nice to have a thing that I'm like, this is fun. This is unambiguously fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that just, that's been bringing a lot of joy this week is that I can now just play video games on a big screen and it's, it's easy. Which, okay. which Xbox do you have? I have the brand new one. Ooh, fancy. It is the fancy <laughs> Xbox. <laughs> um, but I will also say it's the first time that a controller has been accessible to me. Like the, the buttons are actually big. I can actually yeah. read the A, X, Y, B. Like, it, it's actually doable for me. And I'm actually ordering one of the Xbox Design Lab ones where you can actually pick the colors so that I can see it even better. Like, Oh, wow, that's awesome. For the first time in my life, I'm going to have a fully accessible controller for me. Huh. That's cool. I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know you could do yes. that on your own. Yes, it is. Literally, you can go onto the Microsoft website and you can design your own controller. So mine is going to be teal and pink. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's awesome. I I, uh, I know that that one is hard to get, the newer Xbox. Mm -hmm. Just like the new mm -hmm. you know, PlayStation is hard to get. Um, I am very lucky. It just kind of <laughs> happened. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Patrick, how about you? Well, I'm, I'm going to be self-serving uh, in a little ways, and I'm going to pick... Uh, because we'll be there, Capricorn 42. Yeah. So uh, as this episode drops, Capricorn will be happening the following weekend. Uh, we will be there. It's February 3rd through 6th. Uh, the last time I was there, I had a blast. I had so much fun that the the convention people continue to reach out to me and and follow me on, on the social medias. And, you know, that's how I met Cannoli Joe. And in the past, we have promoted the con here on the podcast, uh, just, you know, to give them a little extra signal boost. So I'm looking forward to being there again and, yeah. and hanging out and, and seeing how that goes. It'll uh, also be, be a, a sort of watershed moment because it will be the first time you and I meet in person in the yes. real verse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you'll have this, I'll know how tall you are and you'll know how short I am and there'll be a... <laughs> Maybe it'll be like Dragon Ball Z. We'll stand at a certain distance and just sort of like crackle at each other and monologue for several episodes before anything happens. Well, and we can go and we can heckle Skiffy and Fanti because they're going to be. Oh, recording. we could do a total Statler and Waldorf. I'm sure Sean yes. Duke will love that. Yes, yes, he will appreciate that a lot. <laughs> oh, Sean, Sean, Sean will be so delighted that he got his own Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. Our gift to you, my man. <laughs> well, and uh, uh, I'll just throw it out, you know, you talked about how tall I am. I, I think I've told the story. Emilio is not tall. Emilio yeah. is short. Mm -hmm. And Donardo is also short compared to me. Mm -hmm. And the first time I was in a room with them was at uh, World Fantasy in mm -hmm. Ohio, I believe. 
And I walk into the room and I'm looking around and I don't, I, I don't see them, but they saw me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they came up and they're like, yeah, we, we kind of saw you across the room. Well, I'm five, seven. So I don't think that you've upgraded in terms of, in terms of partner height. So, Yeah. All right, so that's quite a grab bag of stuff. We've got a con, we've got we've got the video game experience of the brand new Xbox and its accessibility and customizability. Which is awesome. Um, we have an old school tabletop game. And of course, we have Elsa. Elsa, where can people find you in the wide, wide etherverse and, and your work out there in the wild? Well, you can pick up Being Seen, One Deaf Blind Woman's Fight to End Ableism at any bookstore, anywhere, including Amazon. Please leave a review on Amazon if you've already read it, because that does actually help with search results. Um, you can find me at Snarkbat literally everywhere. <laughs> S-N-A-R-K-B-A-T. Yes, it's a blind joke. Um, and then you can find Sword of the White Horse on bookstore websites everywhere. It's for pre-order. It'll be out in April 2022. And then you can get some stabby witch heisting. Um, other than that, I have some short fiction that will be coming out later this year, and uh, I'm currently cooking up a novel that I'm hoping to sell. So we'll see what happens. Nice. Fantastic. It was great having you on, Elsa. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy New Year. And that means it's time for a new bumper. I've got a couple of extra things for you before we close out the episode. First, Tracy and I will be at Capricorn 42 February 3rd through the 6th in Chicago. Capricorn 42 will be held in person at the Sheraton Grand Chicago Hotel. We're talking about doing some sort of hangout. And as soon as we get that locked down, I'll let you know they've not locked in the schedule yet. Uh, but I think that they're getting really close. So we'll let you know as soon as we do. For more information about Capricorn 42, please visit capricorn.org. In the meantime, you should check out Beyond the Trope, a great podcast run by some pretty awesome people. Giles and Michelle have been putting out episodes regularly for over seven years. They have a lot of great guests, just like we do, and have a lot of fun, just like we do. I think you'll like them. Go check them out at beyondthetrope.com. You're still listening, aren't you? Chicka chicka.